everybody. I'm Melody Thomas. And my name's Tony Stamp. And this is a podcast about pop culture. In fact, it's called <laughs> Pop Culture. Surprise! In this podcast, we explore themes and characters of popular culture and how they come to be, what they say about the people who make them and the people who enjoy them, that kind of thing. So you took the lead on this one, Tony. We take turns. What is it going to be? Well... This episode we've loosely been calling The Future. It started with us wanting to take a look at some new forms of entertainment that have sprung up in recent years Mm. and have a think about where they might be taking us. Am I right in thinking that there are new things every day? I mean, it seems like it, eh? (laughs) Yeah. Reuters had that piece about the 3D model of the Milky Way that you can look at in virtual reality. Yeah, amazing. And, And there's been stories about holograms of Amy Winehouse and Roy Orbison going on tour, which... Yeah, I mean, it starts to feel a a bit ghoulish, and there's Mm. all sorts of ethical ramifications. So we're going to get into some speculations about where this is taking us later, but I thought we could start in the present with Mm -hmm. a line of work that, you know, would have seemed futuristic not that long ago. It's the online content creator. My name is Annalie Muggridge. I am a freelance makeup artist and content creator for YouTube, and I've been doing it for roughly four years now. So Annalie is what is known as an influencer. She's got over 100,000 YouTube followers, fans around the world, and, you know, this is like her job now. Mm, I, I imagine that there will be people listening who, like me, get quite kind of cynical and icky feeling when you say the word influencer. But mm-hmm. but basically an influencer is, correct me if I'm wrong, but someone who's built up, you know, a brand and a following online and they get paid to showcase products and maybe do tutorials or and, and exactly. the products could be clothes or games or so what does Annalie do? Well in her case her speciality I guess is makeup. When I tell people what I, I do for a living they're so intrigued I think the first question is like does YouTube pay you? Like how yeah. does that work? So how does it work? <laughs> well some of her income is derived from YouTube but mm. Annalie is in the top tier, so she's actually represented by the talent agency Johnson & Laird. And what I found was that these people tend to sort of start at home. You know, they just film themselves talking about something. And then when they get to a certain level of fame, I suppose, then they get signed to an agency and start to make money from clients. I was just publishing before and after photos of clients on my Facebook page and people were like, hey, like we would really love to see you create this on YouTube. I have always been quite an open book and I would definitely say I'm an extrovert. And so for me, I was like, oh yeah, go on, let's do it. What's the worst that can happen? But I know for a lot of other people, it's a really daunting idea. Mm. I like just to talk about anything and everything. So people really appreciate when you're very open and have that relationship with them through a screen. So I create uh, makeup tutorials, I do hair tutorials, I'll do fashion, skincare routines, I'll daily vlog every now and again as well, especially when I travel with my work or if I'm um, up in Auckland or Wellington for an event, I think it's always nice to see something out of the ordinary. It's, It's just very like lifestyle-based with beauty and fashion and amongst it. So I went to your page on their, their site and, you know, it, it, it has all your, your metrics. So mm-hmm. uh, Instagram followers, YouTube subscribers. And the first thing I thought was that must be quite stressful if you're going to keep on top of that stuff and mm-hmm. and make sure it's always growing. Do you approach it like that or do you just sort of put that to the back of your mind and just try to make good stuff? 
Oh my goodness. It's like a back and forth between the two all the time. I think with this industry, it's really hard to put the line of separation between your personal life and your working life because like your personal life is what goes online, which is your work. And it can be really tricky. I think for me, um, funny enough, I was actually talking to a couple of friends about this last night. You know, you might post something up on Instagram and then the next minute I'm like, oh my goodness, what am I going to post next? Because you always have to consistently be posting and maintaining that relationship with your following online because there's so many other people doing it. That phrase, always be posting, is something that I kept hearing. One thing that's funny listening to it is that when we imagine, or I don't know, when I imagine influencers working from home, it feels like quite a casual, carefree thing, like Mm. sit down when you're in the mood and and record some content. Yeah. But when she describes it, it sounds like there's very little downtime. I know. She's posting, she's like, what next? That sounds not good. (laughs) It, It sort of sounds like it just consumes your life. Yeah. And, you know, when I thought about it, I thought, well, you know, this is the end result of this sort of business model that's been created by the internet and social media and like we were saying making yourself into a brand anyway the real reason that I wanted to go down this particular avenue was to get to something that's fascinated me for a while the appearance of virtual influences Melody can you guess what I'm talking about here (laughs) maybe it would help if I show you this and just describe to me what what you see there oh okay Okay, so (laughs) it's an Instagram post from, it looks like a pretty classic Instagram influencer post, Mm. especially when it first opens because it's quite small. I'm like, okay, it's like a babe at a nightclub with a great outfit and cool hairdo. But then you scroll in and you realise that it's she's not real. Yes, exactly. So that's the Instagram account of someone called Little Michaela, who was the world's first virtual influencer, uh, although oh, a bunch no. have sprung up since, and we'll talk about those. She's very confusing because if you look closely, her clothes are actually real, but she what? herself is completely computer-generated. Her clo- Hang on, sorry, can you... Well, what I assume, and no one knows, apart from the people behind it, is that... There is a real person, and then they have drawn over the top of that person with this right. computer-generated imagery. Because it does look very real. This real. is why it was so fascinating when it started, because there were so many possibilities as to what could actually be happening, but mm. I, I think that's the most logical. So she's ostensibly a 19-year-old Brazilian-American model, but, but again, really. she, she isn't. <laughs> okay. She's been around for a few years. She's amassed 1.5 million followers. Oh, And as I say, in the early days, there were a lot of theories about her identity. She initially said that she was a real person in control of her own account and using Instagram filters that she had made herself. But it's since come to light that she was actually created whole cloth by a company called Brud. Now. Okay. (laughs) Is Brud real? Brud is completely real. Okay. But it's still very mysterious. So it's, it's a real company based in America. You can go to their website. They describe themselves as a group of problem solvers specializing in robotics, artificial intelligence, and their applications to media businesses. But things do start to get complicated because in the press, Brad have said that Michaela is actually a quote-unquote robot. So they're saying that this photo that I'm looking at is a photo of a real robot. That's what they're saying. 
That I mean, it's it's obviously CGI. I could get into. I've I've discovered a bit about sex robots through my other mm. podcast, and I know that for a fact how hard it is to get one that isn't wearing a battery backpack. Right. If she's going to be walking around, but that aside, it she looks CGI. Yeah. Yeah. So they're engaging in this sort of uh, meta fiction, and they are encouraging people to believe that she is a real being. And most of the comments on her Instagram page sort of go along with that. So they actually believe that she is an actual sentient robot or they're playing along with the fiction, which is great, but it makes you wonder about their motivations, particularly when you see Michaela starting to pop up in advertising campaigns, which has finally started to happen after years. Uh, So she's in the new Ugg Boots campaign, for example, and she's also done stuff for Prada. So do you mean, is she animated? Is she talking in these ads or are they still photographs? Still photographs, yeah. So she's on billboards. She's in sort of magazines and, you know, on web pages and stuff. So I reached out to Brad, but they ignored my requests for an interview, which they apparently do to everyone. So failing that, I Skyped a writer called Amelia Petrarca, who is a, a fashion writer and wrote what I think is the definitive article about Lil Michaela and the cult that follows her for the cut. So I guess my first question is, why is something that is clearly so artificial, why is it caught on with people to such a great extent? I sort of approached the article um, in a similar way. To me, you know, she was so clearly not real. And then the more and more that I talked to people, the more I realized that, one, that she looked more real than I realized to Mm. people. It was not something that was necessarily obvious at first glance. And then it was also something that people just didn't really care about. (laughs) They didn't care that she wasn't real or they didn't care at least that she wasn't real in the traditional definition of real. She was as real to them as anybody else who they saw on their screen. And that was sort of why I started the article with this anecdote about this 15 year old who I was with at lunch, who you know, pulled up little Michaela on her phone and I could tell that she knew that she wasn't real, but there was something about little Michaela that made this girl sort of pause and, you know, just stare at this photo. And it sort of like evoked like a, a reaction in her that was confusing and, but also intriguing. She wanted to know more. She was so excited that I was even writing about her because she just had so many questions. She's as real as like a fantasy novel. And I think that's, really a real thing for a lot of people. Do you think that it's going to become an important distinction moving forward, the line between, well, just the word real, I suppose? Yeah, definitely. It's something that interests me so much. I'm a fashion writer, so I think it it comes up a lot in terms of <laughs> real and fake in the fashion industry, but just in terms of tech and where I think we're headed I mean, with virtual reality, you know, we're putting a whole other word on in front of the word reality, I think the lines are going to become much more blurry as we become more and more immersed in virtual reality and it becomes more and more a part of our actual reality. You know, fake, fake is bad, right? Mm -hmm. But now I think we're moving towards a moment where fake might actually be an escape and fake might have more of a sense of humor. Fake might, it actually might have more personality than something that's real. And I think that I saw that with the research I did with Lil Michaela, because in mimicking influencers and people on Instagram who you might call quote unquote fake, Lil Michaela actually seems more real because she's 
taking on the personality of these people who are pretending to be something else, if that makes any sense. It's, I, I, get, I get kind of twisted when I talk about all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, we're all twisted right now. <laughs> <laughs> we're all tied up in knots right now. So as oh. part of that article, there's mm. a video of Amelia where she wanted to try and create a copy of Lil Michaela. As part of the video, you guys created your own Michaela uh, with a motion graphics artist. You ended that video saying, sort of encouraging people to do the same and sort of flood the market. It raised (laughs) questions for me about, uh, you know, is she copyrighted? Can you copyright a person like that? And and do you think Um, people are going to sort of, this is going to become more common? Well, until that video was made, I had no idea that it was that easy to (laughs) recreate her. They were sort of like, oh, hey, our guy over here just like did it. And I was like, what? (laughs) And I I knew that the software was like readily available to people. I assumed it was like too expensive and too difficult to do. I think Brud, the company that like owns and creates her, Mm -hmm. is so secretive that I have no idea if they're like dealing with lawsuits like that where they're trying to shut down fake little Michaela's. I would Mm -hmm. think... Probably not because they seem to sort of welcome any and all press opportunities, even though they themselves don't agree to any of them or offer themselves up for any of them. I mean, you are seeing, like in the article, I mentioned a couple other um, sort of virtual influencers who have gained a following. Sort of, there's like a male equivalent of Lil Michaela, who he's like her counterpoint. And then there's this, and this is sort of what spawned the article is that Brad has also created Bermuda, who is a right wing like pro-Trump troll, basically. And they've sort of created this blossoming friendship Mm. on Instagram. Like Bermuda and Lil Michaela had like a drama-free lunch together. And like, I think Brud's whole thing is that they're sort of promoting like the fact that, you know, conservatives and Democrats or, you know, left-wing people and right-wing people can get along. And they think of themselves as... The activists, mm. they think that Lil Michaela is, you know, there to do good and mm. spread positive values. So that's that's what they think. If you have 1.5 million followers, as Lil Michaela does, like it is no doubt a good thing for them to be telling people to register to vote and, you know, mm-hmm. promoting causes like Black Lives Matter and stuff like, like I, you know, no doubt that that is good. But mm-hmm to sort of disregard the fact that Lil Michaela is also, you know, in campaigns for Uggs, I think is a little <laughs> confusing. Yes. <laughs> and I did speak to one designer who was like, yeah, my PR person just sent them clothes for free. Like there's not necessarily money that's changing hands, but she is promoting a certain look at the end of the day, a certain style. And that is helping her eventually do these larger campaigns with UGG because she's sort of recognized as a, you know, influencer style icon sort of thing. To, to me, these these influences on, online and on Instagram, th- this is a, a relatively new phenomenon. I, I mean, you've probably been aware of it for, for longer than I have because of your uh, line of work. But where is this all leading? Like, do you have any idea where we're going to be in five years' time and 10 years' time? Are, are real people still going to be doing this as a line of work, mm-hmm. for example? I think it seems really, like, very of the moment and futuristic. But in terms of, like, putting Lil Michaela in the same context as, like, The Sims, which I grew up playing, mm-hmm. and, you know, any other animated character 
which has been around for a long time. The only difference is that before, you know, your cartoons were on your TV and your Sims were on your computer. But now Will Michaela is like on your Instagram next to real people doing very similar things. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was sort of reporting this, I was like, you know, maybe it wouldn't be so bad if I had, you know, an exact replica of myself that sort of lived <laughs> online and then I could just live my real life and then have my fake person just be fake instead of trying to like do both in my head and like, mm. you know, have this Instagram profile that's like half professional, half me and like trying to find the like balance. But like, it's a really complicated thing that I think everyone is really wrestling with is what, you know, what is me? What is my online self? Michaela definitely like tapped into that. We might be entering a new phase where people care more or a lot more than they normally do about how they look virtually than how they look in real life, maybe. I mean, that last point about how maybe it would be quite nice to have a separate online you to a, to your real life you. I can understand where that comes from because mm-hmm. it can be exhausting mm-hmm. you know translating your real life into online and it could be if it didn't take too much time to have a figure that looks like you but I'm, I imagine a better version of you and to dress it up and put it in these fake situations I can see the appeal of that but I get I get really nervous around things like you know like I was just looking through her profile and there's a photo of her in a in a vote t-shirt yes. what does it say every single vote counts and then a you know, the, the caption is as if she's talking to you, which they all are, like, yep. just care to remind you to vote. And that yep. makes me a bit nervous because where is the accountability when when it's a fake person telling you these things? Exactly, like, yes. What if, what if they encourage something messed up? Who do we go to? Like, who, who's at fault? Well, as Amelia said then, like, this other character, Bermuda, who was also created by Bride, is a right-wing Trump supporter. <sighs> I know, the the ethical implications. I don't think anyone has the answers yet. So anyway, in addition to her being a model and an influencer, Michaela has started a career as a singer. No. Oh, yes. Stop. She's collaborated with the musician Bauer, and she appears in a music video with him as, you know, what I have to say is pretty crude CGI in, in quite a slick video. But as for who is actually doing the singing, no one knows. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on. It's like a car wreck. I'm like mm. fascinated mm. and appalled. Can't look away. To be honest with you, Melody, I like so I've been following Michaela for two years now and I was so fascinated two years ago, but mm. talking to people about it and, you know, following it a bit more closely uh, as research for this show, I'm so sick of it. Okay. I'm just like <laughs> this this is another thing that we're gonna hear about shortly is this sort of stuff there might be a backlash and people are going to get sick of artificiality and want something that is actually real as opposed to real in inverted commas. I would say possibly my primary concern with all of this would be that um, you know we already have Photoshop and Mm. we already have people speaking out against Photoshop and the unrealistic beauty standards that it sets, especially for young people. And, you know, while I'm looking through this Instagram feed, on on the one hand, I'm really inspired because there are some amazing outfit choices. I mean, her style is impeccable or whoever is creating her style, but also she's very, you know, typically feminine and Mm -hmm. and slim and Mm -hmm. um, 
almost kind of childish with looking with her freckles and I'm just yeah. like that concerns me and if the line is blurring between what is real and what isn't then I, I worry for young women especially but mm. just young people who would see this and think that this is something to aspire to when, when it's actually impossible to be a CGI robot. Mm. Worth pointing out that the five that I'm aware of four of them are women and again this is something that we're going to come up against later on. So there are others springing up. Uh, from Britain, there's one called Pearl WWW. Um, and there's also Shudu, who is a black African model, who okay. it turns out was created by a white British fashion photographer, Cameron James Wilson, which no. raises obvious <laughs> icky implications. Oh, no. You sent me some links to some other things that are kind of related. So there's there's a kind of reverse of Michaela where the models are real, but the clothes are CGI. Yeah. And a growing amount of digital makeup where the faces are real, but the makeup is CGI. Yeah. In both of those cases, it's sort of like, you know, you're only constrained by your imagination. So it's incredibly ambitious makeup and incredibly ambitious clothing that yeah. couldn't actually exist in, in real life. Yeah. Okay. So over the course of this series, we've been giving each other little assignments to take away, like homework. And for your assignment this episode, you looked at some of the artwork that is now being made by artificial intelligence. Yeah, and there's quite a bit of this. And I imagine it's just going to be more and more. As the, mm. as the technology develops. But this idea initially came to us because we both received some music in our inboxes that was AI created. So it was by mm. a couple of artists called Holly Herndon and a producer, Jay Lynn. The song's called Godmother, and it was composed entirely by artificial intelligence, which isn't entirely brand new, though often with music, AI kind of creates it and then humans come in after the fact and you know, repeat what's been done by the AI with human voices and instrumentation. So oh, right. this is AI fully. Have you heard it yet? Yeah, I have. It's incredibly unnerving. It's so <laughs> creepy. Yeah. Yeah. So this this for me is one that really struck me because it really, to me, feels like a robot is trying to talk to you. Like a robot yeah. is trapped in something and is trying to get help and doesn't know the language and is just, like, creepily trying to communicate with you. I mean, and, it's the first bit of AI-composed music that really uh, sounds like an AI composed it. In yes. that it's, it's, it's really unnerving and really robotic and sort of repetitive and not like not that pleasant to listen to, frankly. No, but 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 interesting because a lot of the stuff that I've heard that's quote unquote AI created isn't that interesting to me. Mm. It, you know, mm. it sounds like often it just sounds like another version of all the songs that's been fed. So the AI itself is, you know, they pitch it as a member of their band called Spawn. And Spawn has taken Holly's voice and used some of her vocal patterns to create this weird kind of almost beatboxy, like rhythmic vocal sound that Holly herself said, like, it's based on my voice, but I never would have decided to do that. So, it, you know, the questions about whether that is creativity that come out of there are, are really fascinating. Um, and the the video is equally creepy. So if you would like to look that up, that's Holly Herndon and Jalen. That's J-L-I-N. And the song is Godmother. So when it comes to visual art, there's some really fascinating things going on as well. 
I read one story about scientists who have been using a generative adversarial network, GAN, to generate AI-created artwork. And it's so it's actually two AI systems paired together. One mm. of them produces images and the other judges them on their merits. And from how? that... How, how does it judge? Well, it was taught using 81,000 different paintings oh and right. taught about different styles. And so... Okay. So one, the one AI creates an artwork, the other one criticises it, and then from that conversation, a final mm. artwork is created. And they also did a survey with members of the public who thought that the AI, like a lot of them preferred the AI works and thought they were more inventive. So. Amazing. I wanted to talk to someone about AI, artificial intelligence, and its implications. So I contacted the New Zealand AI Forum, and they put me onto someone called Katie Hinson. So Katie's had a 20-year career in the entertainment industry as an editor, visual effects artist, uh, 3D artist, and she's now head of operations at Department of Post in Auckland, who bill themselves as the most state-of-the-art post-production facility in the Southern Hemisphere. And to begin with, of course, I told her about little Michaela. People have always looked for escape. People have always looked for entertainment. People get just as obsessed and want to believe the worlds of Star Wars. I think that what you're talking about is not, for the most part, that people are that stupid. Mm. It's just that people want to believe in something, in a fantasy, and they know logically that it's not real, but... I mean, we also know that the life of Justin Bieber is not real. We also know that the life that we see of Beyonce is not real and that the life of, you know, the royals isn't as glamorous as all of that. I mean, we've always looked at those things and wanted to believe those fantasies of princesses and rock stars. And we know it's not what their lives are really like. We know that they, you know, still get up and eat wheat bags. But... I think that's a big part of what you're talking about, that people are just looking for another form of immersive entertainment. And while we do know logically that something's not real, we don't really care anyway. I feel like one of the emerging themes of this episode about the future is that the word real starts to become a bit more slippery. It's definitely something that kept coming up. And when you're Mm. talking about artificial intelligence, it's right there in the name, artificial intelligence. Katie pretty frequently gives talks about AI and uh, its use in storytelling, most recently at something called the Great AI Debate. People were really surprised when we revealed that a lot of stuff is currently being produced by AI anyway. Mm -hmm. Can you give me some examples? Mm -hmm. The, The use of AI as a tool that's in the way that it already is being used and the trend towards it is that it is augmenting the professionals. It is augmenting people and allowing us as humans to focus on higher level tasks and to be more creative. It takes away some of the simple, boring stuff so that we can focus on other things. So in terms of journalism, for example, you know, weather reports, traffic reports, sports reports, those things that are quite repetitive and formulaic are in many, many cases now, written by and generated by AI. And that allows the journalists to be journalists Mm. and focus on much higher level journalism and writing. Mm. That said, 
one thing to say is that there is a lot of talk about AI writing a script or AI writing an article, or AI writing a book. Yes. And if you actually see the demos of those, AI doesn't write anything. It's <laughs> it's like, <laughs> have you ever seen Mad Libs? You know, you've done those Mad Libs. Yeah. It, that's how AI writes. So It takes a person to actually help it along quite significantly. It's interesting because things like you were saying about weather reports, sports reports and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I mean, I think people possibly intuitively know or assume that to mm. an extent. But, you know, no one's objecting to that. But I'm assuming that the... The debate in, mm-hmm. in the great AI debate was that whether or not this is going to take people's jobs. And mm-hmm. I think people don't like the idea of being fooled by something. Exactly, yeah. Um, my forecast, I suppose, for the future of the media does tie into that. If you look at trends in society and trends in technology and the media, you can get a pretty decent idea of where you know you might expect things to go. And Looking at the trends in society with people starting to distrust the media and also to be very insecure about whether or not AI and computers are going to affect them and, and especially in the jobs market, we're seeing you know a lot of income inequality, low-level jobs being lost to automation. If you were to kind of project that out, you will see the trends, if the trends continue, that people are going to start to really value, put greater value in anything that is obviously or subconsciously at the very least perceived to be very human made because people need to want to be able to trust the media sources again. Mm -hmm. So that is why we're seeing, if you look at little tiny weak signals of trends now, the rising popularity of podcasts Mm -hmm. has to do with people going back to radio because people trusted radio and felt that it was very human. It's your voice, it's my voice, and we are people. And therefore, the subconscious of the public is saying, oh, that's a real person, I know that that's real, and I can trust it. I'm sorry, uh, I'm a bit distracted because I keep thinking about how good it would be to have AI assistance on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it would lose that, you know human uh, quality that we have in spades. I guess so. I guess like so. when I trip over my words and <laughs> slur and stuff. That's what people want to hear. <sighs> so then when I was talking to Katie, our conversation moved on to virtual reality. And yep. Melody, I'm, I'm wondering what you know about VR, if you've had any experience with it. I've put on a VR, like, eye set. What are they called? Like a headset? Headset, yeah. I've put one on in like a two degrees shop to have a oh, quick right. look and okay. been like, oh, this is quite cool. And also in in my Bang Sex Sexuality podcast, I have encountered people using VR in Australia as a way of teaching about consent, which is really fascinating. Yeah, interesting. So people will go into bar situations and practice either turning someone down in a safe hmm. way or, or else, yeah, people who might infringe upon other people's consent can learn not to. So that's my knowledge. Interesting. Mm. So so I've used this sort of new type of VR once uh, to play games at my friend's house. Mm. And it made me so incredibly sick. I cannot tell you. I played for about 10 minutes. It was a first-person game. Like nauseous? Uh, yeah. Ah. So you're, it's, it's because you're in that first-person perspective. Yeah. Uh, as I say, I played really quickly, and then I felt like I was going to throw up for hours afterwards. I yeah. couldn't, I could barely move. Well, some people get this with 3D, don't they? Yeah, exactly, and that's the yeah. exact same thing, because mm. in that case, too, 
essentially the technology is forcing you to go cross-eyed for a long period of time, which obviously right. isn't ideal. Some people can handle it. I mm. could not. Okay. So, so we were talking about VR, and then she mentioned AR, which I had never heard of. AR is augmented reality. Oh, okay. Essentially, the difference between VR and AR and MR and XR and all of these things. What is, sorry, what's XR? <laughs> yeah. Extended reality. Wow. I mean, there's all of these acronyms now, and, and there's essentially three different technologies. Virtual reality is where you put on a headset and you go into another world. Augmented reality is where the world comes to you. So you're usually using uh, a device nowadays, like um, your iPhone or your iPad or your, your tablet, or sometimes with glasses, and you have a window into objects that are placed within your world. So Pokemon Go was an example of augmented reality. Okay. And it's essentially projecting things into your environment. Mixed reality is that too. Mixed reality, again, is a virtual reality and a real reality combined. And that can include holograms and things like that. There are technologies that are really cool. Magic Leap and HoloLens and, and the like are where you put on glasses and other people can put on glasses and see the same thing as you. But they are holograms projected into your room and interacting with the environment that you're in. So they're mixing... Sorry, how do they interact with the environment? So what it does is essentially you put on a, a headset, it scans the room, and then it composites in real-time objects into that room in, in a space. But the people, other people in the room with the same headsets have the same room scanned. So they can see the same thing at the same time, and you're comp connected to the same computer. That is amazing. It's really cool. It's really cool. A few years ago, this was the thing that I was researching. Is VR the thing? And my conclusion was that VR is the step towards the thing. And I was looking at all of these different technologies. And as soon as I put on a Microsoft HoloLens, I was very skeptical. I thought it was going to be really crap. And I actually had this demo and went, this is it. This is, this is where we're going. This is absolutely where we're going. We are social creatures and we want to share our experiences. And VR doesn't really let us share our experiences with one another. For example, kids have these interactive AR games on their iPads where whole worlds are put on the floor in front of them and they can play with these characters, these animated characters, but then they can also purchase the virtual toy of that character, put it on their physical toy shelf... Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then when they pick up the iPad the next day and they look at the toy shelf, there it is, and they can play, take it down and play with it again. So, so you're saying that the technology knows that there's a shelf there, mm -hmm. and if it were in this room with us, it would know that there are Correct. steps here. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's the sound of my mind being boggled. <laughs> oh, yeah, my mind's, my mind's a bit boggled as well. That article that you sent me in The Guardian about the future of pop culture has the futurologist Faith Popcorn in it. She's quoted from The Hollywood Great Reporter. Name. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. In The Hollywood Reporter saying that movies will be VR-based mm. and that they're going to unfold in real time all around us. So you pay for a time slot, you tune in your technology, and then you become part of the action. So mm. 
endings and events change as you go and smells and tastes and sensations are experienced live and casts are comprised of your own avatars and you're the star. So that's the story uh, part, isn't sounds it? sounds terrible to it me. It sounds... Oh, I was like, <laughs> okay, I could, have a, I could have a go at that. But then when it says It'd you're be the... fun. Yeah. Mm. The, the, I, the smell thing is happening already. In America, you can see movies in what they're calling 4D. Uh, which at the moment sounds like a total gimmick. They they move your seat when there's action happening and they pipe in relevant smells and, you know, mist and things like that. For a long time, I have said this to friends. When are we going to have smells and sensations <laughs> in yeah. the cinemas? So that's, I'm kind of excited about that. But it does, you're right, it feels currently gimmicky, but who's to know if this is going to be the stuff that sticks? Like, exactly. Who's to know what yeah. is going to stick? That article also has another futurologist, Ray Hammond, not as cool a name, who says, we're not far away from seeing the first wholly virtual celebrities alive, which I think, I mean, I feel like we're there, aren't we? Isn't that mm. what Michaela is? Well, I guess there are there are strange implications. In that same article, uh, Ray Hammond says that, you know, when celebrities are wholly virtual, then they can be immortal. And we're seeing things like the young Princess Leia in the Star Wars film Rogue One, all the holograms of Amy Winehouse and Roy Orbison that we mentioned at the start of this episode. And the Amy one seems particularly painful and tasteless to me, considering totally how much tasteless. we know that fame yeah. kind of killed her. It's sort of staggering. One thing that that article doesn't mention, but something that you've brought up in this episode, is robots, yep. which have kind of fallen out of favour uh, recently, but we've become very digital-focused. Mm. But I went and visited an old lecturer of mine at the University of Auckland, and she quickly brought it up and, again, blew my mind. I mean, robotics and kind of introducing AI as humanoid mm -hmm. is absolutely a gender issue, which is to say that it's the, it's the female, mm. sort of the female appearing robots that are the most compelling, that are getting the interest and the attention. You know, not surprisingly, this is where the porn industry is coming in on it. It's like gender objectification is shifting off of real women onto, you know, onto AI women. And I guess I wouldn't be too surprised if the whole kind of ethical question of whether robots have rights, which is probably coming at us, whether that doesn't initially get played out in gender terms. Yeah. And bang, I've talked with robot ethicists about wow. this. Yeah. Their voice we just heard was Dr. Misha Kavka. She lectures in the film and TV department at Auckland University. She's specialised in things like feminism and media and reality television. And she's always looking at new forms of media, including what she calls new media screens. Misha was very, very hesitant to make any predictions for the future, which is completely fair enough. Mm. But she was more than willing to talk about new technology like virtual reality. I mean, this is in a sense where the radical edge of filmmaking is sort of is moving. We're in kind of, you know, previously someone might have an idea about embodying a character mm -hmm. and would do so kind of through sort of writing a script, maybe making a film, you know, from the perspective of that character, even though that character does not share their own identity traits. And I can think of oodles of examples from, you know, from the indie film world. Sure. Now it seems like that kind of that that sense of being driven to to embody a character is moving into CGI and kind mm. of you know onto these online worlds and i think we shouldn't forget 
that yes, this is kind of influencers and yes, they're selling stuff, but it doesn't actually start as a ploy to get money, right? I mean, it starts as a way of using these kind of platforms and technologies that are becoming available to tell stories mm. kind of about and to ourselves, right? Mm. And then people kind of, the stories resound, right? Mm. This is obviously what how followers happen, right? Mm. The story, the persona resounds. And then that, of course, is what turns out to be capitalizable. You know, we've heard about how as this kind of thing develops, we'll be more and more attracted to things that are real and authentic. And you hear a lot of people talking about authenticity as being central to your brand and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But then when I look at people on Instagram who have millions of followers, I don't see that as authentic. Mm. Mm. You know, it feels very performative and practiced and not real. Well, after that, I I went on to ask her about what she'd observed about the way that younger people people are ingesting pop culture and the way that they engage with it? It's certainly fair to say that younger generations, whatever that may mean, don't really have this strict binary between entertainment and information. Hmm. Like we used to live in a culture where entertainment was the thing that you did when you weren't thinking, when you weren't at work, when you weren't doing anything productive. And information, like reading the newspaper in the morning with your cup of coffee on your way to work, because this is part of your proper civic being, right? Mm -hmm. You know, information was this much more valued thing, and entertainment was the thing that you did when, you know, later in the evening, too tired, turn your head off. I think that the ubiquity of media now means that we just we can't make that distinction anymore, right? It just mm. doesn't make sense really any longer to distinguish between something that might be information and have the value of information mm. and something that is devalued as entertainment. So yes, we're more media savvy, but to me being more media savvy means that we understand much better how these things kind of that boundary blurs and how these things sort of feed into one another. I feel like she's directly describing podcasts there because that is entertainment and information combined into this really beautiful form. I think I sort of thought about Twitter and mm-hmm. the way that it's all of those things. And mm, you, that's do, true. you do sort of look at it in your downtime and you do ingest all this stuff whether you want to or not. But then it just raises all of those questions about how then when these things are no longer separated, how how we can be sure, you know, it's all the fake news stuff. Mm. How, can, how can we be sure what we're seeing is real? Well, that brings us quite nicely to this next uh, little point. Oh, good, 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 good. So I wandered down the hall at the university. Did you actually physically wander down physically, the hall? Physically, I wandered down the hall, oh, sauntered down the hall. Cute, I can imagine it, as if it were real. To see- <laughs> as if it were VR on my headset. To see a guy called Dr. Ethan Plout, who's a specialist in computational media. Okay. And when I asked him if there were any new forms that he was interested in, he said something that I'd kind of been waiting for someone to bring up, okay. which is deep fakes. What it is, is taking a real person's face and putting it on someone else's body or turning it into a digital avatar. Is this what I've encountered again in Bang with pornography and people taking celebrities' yeah. faces? And oh no, yes, yeah, that's deeply that's troubling. Exactly what it is. Yes. Okay. So taking yeah a celebrity's face and mm. putting on a, a a pornographic performer's bod. Okay. 
Yeah, that's... that's Is my lingo there okay? I mean, your lingo was less troubling than the thing we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Here's Ethan on deepfakes. We've been able to fake photographs for a long time, right? I mean, you can trace that history back to, I mean, the earliest days of photography. And for political purposes, I mean, Stalin cut people out of photographs after they were killed. So, you know, the idea of manipulating the image is as old as the image. However... The so-called deep fakes, which is to say this technology where we can now create video Mm. to make it look like essentially anybody is doing anything and saying anything, I think does call into question the veracity of what we see in a new way. Mm. I think up to this point, I might have questioned a photograph, but if I had seen a video of you know, Jacinda or Donald Trump or whoever saying something or acting in a certain way, I would have tended to think that that video was, you know, a representation of reality. And that's, I think, not going to be as strong of an assumption Mm -hmm. going forward. So like Misha, Ethan was hesitant to make any predictions, but he did posit one thing, which I thought was very intriguing, which was that the ubiquity of the internet is only going to increase. So it's gone from our computers to our phones and various other devices. And he thinks that sort of dispersion of the web is just going to continue. So I asked him how he thought that that was affecting society. I think our entertainment continues to get more and more entertaining and better (laughs) and easier to get. Uh, I also think that our politics are getting messed up in all kinds of ways that we don't even understand yet. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, you know, the economy is changing in ways that sometimes are great and sometimes are terrible. I mean, the pace of technological change, it is fast. Mm. And as much as the dominance of the personal computer as something that has sort of shaped our world has been a big change. I almost wonder if the disappearance of the personal computer may be a a bigger transition point. Hmm. In what way? Well, as long as computing was something that happened in a box on my desk, I could leave it. Oh, I see. Yeah. But, you know, once there's just computers in every door and window and faucet and toothbrush, I mean, I mean I'm painting a kind of cartoonish picture here, mm. but you wouldn't believe the number of different objects that you can buy that are wireless connected now. Mm. I mean, it, toothbrush, literally, you can get. <laughs> so, you know, as, as the computer just becomes embedded in more and more things, uh, you know, the decision about when you want to compute <laughs> becomes not so much a decision. And yes, I did ask Ethan after that about computer chips getting embedded in human beings and how that's going to go, but he drew the line at speculating about that. That's it. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture. I'm Melody Thomas. And I'm Tony Stamp. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, you can, and you'll get updates via Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or any other number of providers. You know where to find podcasts. And if you'd like to leave us a review, maybe not after this one. I reckon go back to an earlier episode where we left you feeling a bit more upbeat and leave a review then. Pop Culture is produced by us, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. This is our last episode. Thanks for listening. Cocky bit.